of 1 John chapter 2 is where we will be today, 1 John chapter 2, continuing our series, A Sure Faith, a study of 1 John. Last week we talked about the idea that real faith leads to real change. We talked about that a real active and genuine faith would lead us to active and genuine change because of one word, the word is repentance, that we would live lives of repentance towards Jesus Christ. And repentance is not just turning away from sin to nothing. That's not what we're doing when we repent. When we repent, we're not just saying, I'm no longer going to live for myself, I'm no longer going to live in rebellion, and then I'm going to turn away from that. What we're saying is, no, I'm going to turn away from that, and I'm going to turn to the face of God. I'm going to turn to Jesus Christ. I'm going to turn to a living, active relationship with Him. Because if we just try to turn to a void, if we just try to change our behavior, we won't make it. Number one, our hearts won't actually change and we won't be able to change the behavior over time. But number two, we won't make it because we're made not just to to change our behavior, we're made to know Jesus Christ. And so we talked about this is a daily act for those of us that know Jesus. This is not something that we do one time. We say a prayer of repentance when we're saved and then we move on. We actually live lives of repentance every day following Jesus. And so last week we saw that a sure faith kind of starts with repentance. This week we'll see that a sure faith is sustained by obedience and love. Go ahead and stand and uh, read with me in the book of 1 John. We'll be reading verses uh, 2, or excuse me, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The word of the Lord says this, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am, not writing, you no, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. God, we thank you that that you're present in this place here and now. And Lord, we ask that as we hear your word preached this morning, that you would speak. God, we ask that our hearts would be open, God, our minds would be stilled, and Lord, that we would truly be able to hear what it is that you would have to say to us. Father, we ask that we would have the faith and the courage to live out the things that you call us to this morning. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So I want to begin today by asking you a question. How well did you obey God this week? The past seven days, if you were to give yourself a letter grade, A, B, C, D, or F, 
How well did you honor Jesus? Some of you are looking at me and smiling and laughing a little bit because maybe on the way up here you were arguing all the way here, right? Um, We know that we're not perfect. And in fact, I would actually say this to you. I would say that is not a a good question to be asking, actually. Um, The the thing that, that I want us to see, though, is this. Whatever we love, we will obey. Whatever we love, we will obey. And that's true of of relationships, and it's true of things. If I say that I love my wife, Tara, but I'm not willing to honor any of her wishes, she comes to me and she says, hey, Michael, let's go on a date tonight. And I say, no, not right now, maybe tomorrow. She asks me again, hey, Michael, let's go on a date again. No, we'll do that another time. Michael, will you help me with the children? Nope. Michael, would you help me around the house? Would you go and perhaps buy me some groceries and, and give me some help in this way? Nope. And if my answer is always no, 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 it doesn't matter how much I say that I love her, my actions prove, in fact, that I don't love her because I'm not willing to honor her. I'm not willing to demonstrate in any way that I truly care for her, that I truly want to honor her, that I truly uh, am concerned about her well-being or her wishes. And the same is true not only for people, but even with the things that occupy our time and places. You say, well, you know, how can you honor and obey something like a sport? How can you honor and obey football? I would say I actually felt it last night because I had many things that I needed to be doing. I had many things that I should have been spending my time doing, but I felt this pull towards the TV, right? I could feel this very strong pull. I need to watch football right now. Why? Because my heart loves that, because I'm interested in that, because I care about that. And so not only do I honor it in that way, but we honor it oftentimes with our lips. Did you see that game last night? How good was that? You see, we're projecting honor, and if I would have turned on that TV when I had other things to do, I would have been obeying it. I would have been obeying the sport of football. And so what we have to understand, friends, is that whatever we love, we're going to obey and this is what John is telling us this morning in the book of 1 John chapter 2. Um, let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 2 together. Verses 1 through 2, it says this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So here's the first thing we need to see this morning. The first thing that we need to see is that Jesus has dealt with our biggest problem. And this should cause us to love him. In verses 1 and 2, it's kind of the foundation. It's kind of the starting place that Jesus has dealt with our biggest issue. And so I just want to remind you this morning, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your life, no matter what you find yourself about to face tomorrow or what happened yesterday, Sin, your sin, the fact that you and I one day will die and stand before a holy and righteous God, this is our biggest issue. This is the biggest thing that we have to deal with in this life. And so it's not a marital issue. It's not an income problem. It's not some sort of of even uh, health issue or addiction. Friends, our biggest problem in life is our sin problem. And what these verses tell us is that Jesus has dealt with that for us. He came and lived and died and was crushed in order to crush our sin if we would turn and follow him in faith. 
Jesus took our place. This word, there's a word in verse 2 that says this. He is the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? I think three words. Three words that help us, at least in theological circles. We talk about penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. What does that mean? Penal, the idea of a penalty. That there is a penalty, there is a wrong, there is an issue that we have. We have something against us, a charge that is brought against us. And that Jesus Christ not only took the sin and just threw it away, he didn't do that. He took the sin and he took it upon himself. He substituted himself in my place and in your place. He went to the cross for us and he was killed and crucified for us. And then as he did that, he did what you and I could never do. He atoned for our sin. He made right that situation and he appeased the wrath of Almighty God. This is what Jesus did for us. And so this is wonderful news. He says this, that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Jesus is on our team. Jesus is on our side. And so we see Jesus took our place. This week, there was a a big anniversary in the life of our country on Tuesday. And I hope perhaps that many of you stopped and were still for a few moments on Tuesday. Because Tuesday was... 17 years ago, the anniversary of September 11th. America was attacked in an unthinkable way. Airplanes with men, women, and children were flown into buildings in an act of war and terror on our country. And many people that day lost their lives. It was a dark, dark day, but the light shines brightest in the darkness. That day, there were heroes who ran to those burning buildings. There were heroes who ran towards death. And because those men ran towards death that way, those men and women, some 2,687 people were evacuated and rescued from the Twin Towers as they burned. But it cost 414, at least that we know of, 414 first responders their very lives. And friends, you and I are right to stop and commemorate them. We are right to stop and honor them because in every sense of the word, they are heroes. We may not know their names, but they're heroes. And here's what I want you to see. In an even more powerful and beautiful way, for those of us that know Jesus Christ, we have a hero. For those of us who have been forgiven, we have a hero hero who ran towards death for us And said, I will not sit idly by. I will leave the splendor and glory of heaven. I will come and I will walk among sinful people. And I will stand in their place and do what they could never do. I will rescue them. I will save them. I will restore them to right relationship with God. This is what Jesus does for us. He stood in our place and we must remember this. We must understand that he loves and cares for us and that should motivate us to love him back. So not only do we see that Jesus has dealt with our biggest problem, that he stood in our place, we also need to understand Jesus is our advocate. John says it in verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What does that mean? It means this. Jesus is on our side. 
You see, I think for many people, the idea of God is one of an irritable old man sitting in the sky with a gray beard and lightning bolt in his hand, and he's looking down off of his heavenly porch, and he's watching the little ants on earth, and he's waiting for one of the ants to mess up. Because what's he going to do with that lightning bolt? Zap. But you see, friends, this is not the God of the Bible. That's not what he looks like. You see, the God of the Bible actually looks like a humble but tough Jewish carpenter. The God of the Bible looks like a man who was willing to stand and stare in the face of the religious leaders of his day as they were about to stone an adulterous woman. He drew a line in the sand and he looked at them and he said this, Whoever among you who is without sin, you go ahead and you cast the first stone. You go ahead. And each one of them, one by one, dropped their rocks and walked away. Why? Because they knew. They knew they were sinners. But they were self-righteous and they wanted to point the finger at this woman. They wanted to make an example of her. And Jesus said, no, you're not going to do that. I'm going to be her advocate. I'm going to stand in the gap. I'm going to stand in the way and I will defend and protect this very sinful woman. And so one of the things we need to understand, friends, is God really does hate sin. But he doesn't hate you. And so Jesus says this and he does something absolutely incredible. As they walk away, he stops and he turns to this woman. He says, woman, where are your accusers? She says, I don't see them. They're no more. And then he does this. He says, and neither do I condemn you. Think about that. The Holy One of the universe. If there was anyone who could condemn anyone, it's him. If anybody had the right to throw a stone, if anybody had the right to condemn someone, it was Jesus Christ the righteous. And he says, but neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What freedom, what love we have been given in Jesus Christ. Do you see how heroic the love of God is for you and for me? And from that love, friends, we should be motivated. This should cause us, as we reflect on this, to stop and love him back. To no longer live for ourselves, to no longer live in our sin, but to turn and say, of course I want to live for you. Of course I want to know you, Jesus. And so we have to remember that oftentimes our holiness problem is actually rooted in a love problem. You see, we're tempted and we're trained and we're born to love ourselves first. And so what we need to do is reorient our hearts. We need to reorient our love of things and self and the stuff of this world back towards Jesus. And as we do that, then we can do what's going to come. We can do what he's going to challenge us to do. Because there's two actually incredibly tough things that are coming for us in this chapter. So let's go ahead and look at the next one. It's going to be verses 3 through 6. It's this idea. Jesus tells us, Plainly, and Paul tells us plainly, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. No qualifiers, no if, ands, or buts. It's just that simple. If you love me, then you will obey. And so we have to understand this, friends, that love is best expressed in the act of joyful obedience. Love is how you and I display 
joyful obedience, excuse me, joyful obedience is the way that you and I display love for God. Excuse me. Let's read verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. There it is. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Friends, that ought to be, in some ways, uh, scary to hear. Anybody walk as Jesus walked in, the, in here? Anybody want to raise their hand for that one? I'm walking as Jesus walked. That's tough because he was perfect. That's tough because he loved perfectly. That's tough because he honored God perfectly. But what John is saying is that there is a standard and we are called to live in obedience to Jesus, period. And so if someone says, I know Jesus, and the fruit of their life is sin, then we have something scriptural. Again, it's not our job to walk around judging people in terms of whether or not they're actually saved, but we should pause and say, brother, I love you. And I want to know, I just want you to know this. I don't know where you stand with the Lord, but where you stand right now, from what I can see, you're not living a life that a saved person is called to live. Ultimately, I don't know if you know Jesus Christ. But what I can tell is that right now, the way that you're living doesn't help other people see him. Do you see the difference? And so we're not called to judge people's salvation, but we are called to watch the fruit of people's lives and to watch it carefully. John Piper said it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Joyful obedience is how we display love for God. And I believe he's exactly right. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him because of this. Our hearts, when they're fully satisfied, want to do what God wants us to do. You see that? It's actually better than dutifully doing what God wants you to do. You see, there's um, this idea of chivalry in our culture, and it's not a bad idea. There is a place for duty. There's a place for, for this idea of, of being committed to something, and we're not going to back off no matter what. But when, we come, when it comes to certain key relationships, duty is not enough. Duty is not enough. And here's what I mean. Again, I look at my wife, Tara. I didn't meet Tara. We were high school sweethearts, by the way. Met senior, or actually met in uh, freshman year. It took me three years to convince her to, to date me. Senior year, she gave in. I got her. And so we started dating, okay? And senior year, here's what happened. I didn't go to her and tell her something like this. I'm going to begin focusing all of my energy into finding ways to honor you because I know that's my duty if I want to marry you someday. Do you think that would have gone well for me? No. What I did was I was already attracted to her. I already saw her as beautiful, as someone that I wanted to be around. And as I spent time with her, guess what? I got to see and know that she's more and more beautiful. And as she became more and more beautiful, guess what? I wanted to honor her more and more. It was a natural progression. The more that I knew, the more that I saw, the more that I understood she was a precious and wonderful gift, and the more that I understood that she was a precious and wonderful gift of God, the more that I wanted to cherish her and take care of her and love her and respect her the way that she deserves. And friends, this is the way that we're supposed to live with God. This is how marriages are meant to be a picture of the gospel. 
We are not to just dutifully day in and day out say, well, I know I'm supposed to obey. That sin over there sure does look fun. I guess I'll obey anyway. This is not what God calls us to do. I want to show you this, and this is not original to me. There's a a picture of a triangle that, if you knew Pastor Spencer, this was something that, that he did that I think is incredibly helpful. But it's a picture of a triangle, and it's obviously God in the middle. And there's these three verbs, three actions. And they actually feed off of one another. It starts with the idea of knowing. The more that I know God and I know His goodness, guess what? The more that I love God. And the more that I love God, the more natural it's going to be for me to obey God. And here's the beautiful thing. The more that I obey God the more simple it is for God to reveal himself to me again because I can stay in right and pure and good relationship with him. Again, sin doesn't break our relationship with God, right? Sin doesn't break our relationship with God, but sin does hinder our relationship with God even after we're saved. It hinders it in certain ways. Peter talks about this, that men are called to love their wives and treat them carefully so that their prayers would not be hindered. And so sin if it hinders my relationship with God in some ways, I don't want to have that. I don't want my relationship to be hindered. I want to be as close to him as I can possibly be. And so I want to know God. And the more that I am knowing him, the more that I love him. And the more that I love him, I want to obey him. And the more that I obey him, the easier it is for me to know him deeper. This is the beautiful thing. And so if we get stuck in some sort of sin pattern in our lives, the question then is this. Where did I get off of that cycle? Where did I jump off the train? Did I jump off in saying, I'm getting lazy? Even though he's an infinite God, I don't really care to know more about him, so I'm going to kind of put my Bible down. I'm going to kind of walk away from praying a lot. I don't really want to spend time with him and know him in that intimate way. It's too hard. It takes too much time. Did I jump off the train in loving him? Because even though I know the truth and I'm, I've been filling my mind with the truth, I'm, my, I'm allowing my heart to be loving other things and other people and other places. Or did I just jump off the train in blatant obedience? I knew what to do and my heart is inclined towards God, but I still chose to rebel because I'm struggling with some sin that's got its grips in me. It's got its claws down in me. And see, wherever we jumped off the train, we simply ask Jesus, we start there, and we go back, Lord, help me obey you. God, help me love you again. God, help me to have a desire to know you again, wherever it is, and we jump right back in. We have to understand this idea. Almost never does anyone stumble their way into obedience. Have you ever thought about that? Obedience takes intentional effort. It takes focus. It takes discipline. They call it self-discipline for a reason, right? And so we need a plan for how we can practically obey God's will. Over the summer, I went to a conference in Los Angeles. And as I was out in Los Angeles, we flew in on an airplane. It was a beautiful day. And you could see the city uh, from a long way off. But as I could see the city, it was, it was really interesting um, there was this cloud, a gray, very low-sitting cloud that was sitting over the city. And uh, if you've ever been there and you've seen this, you actually know this isn't a cloud at all. It's smog, right? There's this big, huge thing of smog sitting over uh, Los Angeles. And 
Here's the really interesting part. As you land and you get out and you walk around in the city, I forgot the smog was even there. I had no idea that it was there. But here's the reality is it is poisoning the air constantly. Literally, the air that I breathed was being poisoned by the pollution from all the vehicles and all the stuff that's going on in that city. And friends, this is the way oftentimes sin works in our lives. It is spiritual smog. When we're in the middle of it, we can't see it. When it's got its hooks in me, I don't always have the ability to see how horrible it is, how ugly it really is, how much poison it's pumping into my life. And so we need an intentional plan to not get in that in the first place. We need to stay as far away from sin as we possibly can. As soon as I left the city, guess what? I could see the smog again. And this is what happens as we battle sin. Oftentimes when we're stuck in the middle of it, we can't see it. But as God, in his good grace, pulls us away from it, suddenly we can see and say, oh, wow, that really was ugly. That was messed up. I don't want to go back to that. And so we need some practical steps. I want to give you three ways to practically and intentionally fight sin in your life. Three practical ways to fight sin in your life. Number one, renew your mind. If I have the pleasure of being your pastor for the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years, uh, you're going to get sick of me uh, saying this to you over and over and over again. Renew your mind. Because it is crucial in the battle against sin. It is crucial. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is the foundational verses for this. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We must renew our minds if we are going to fight against sin. We need to spend time in God's Word. We need to spend time in prayer. We need to spend time thinking of Him, dwelling on Him, understanding how good He is. We need our our minds to be rewired and reprogrammed so that we can stop loving ourselves first. Next, we need to flee temptation. We need to flee and run away from temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I love this verse. No temptation has overtaken you except uh, that which is common to man. But with temptation, God will provide a way of escape. It's a beautiful verse. God knows we're going to be tempted, but every temptation that you face in life, God is providing a way of escape. That's good news, isn't it? Yeah, that is good news. As strong as your sin nature is, every time you have a way out. And so we need to understand then how I need to treat temptation. Not just sin, even the temptation to sin. The way we need to treat temptation is just like this. If there was a fire that started in the back of this room, where would you be headed? To the escapes. You'd be headed to the way of escape. You'd be out of here. You'd be running, right? That is how you and I are supposed to treat temptation. We flee, we run, we get out. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, when Potiphar's wife grabs him and says, sleep with me, what does he do? He got out of there so fast, she ripped his clothes off, okay? That's what we are to do. We are to flee temptation and run away as quickly as we can. So we need to renew our minds, we need to flee temptation. Lastly, we need to find people to spur us on. You need... And we're not good at this in America. We are, we are horrible at this in America because we're individualists. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We earn our way through life, and we are independent. But God has made you for a relationship, and God has called you to accountability. You need at least one person in this life who truly knows you, not just the you that you project 
out in the community, not just the you that you project at certain points and certain places and certain times. You need someone in your life who truly knows you so that they can spur you on. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another daily as long as it is called today so you, won't be, so you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see it? He calls it deceitful. It's just like that smog. So that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. Exhortation, for the longest time, I thought was just encouragement. Exhortation is more than encouragement. It is encouragement. But it also includes this idea of spurring each other on. I've never been kicked by a pair of spurs, but I would imagine that it doesn't feel great, right? The horse is running, and he starts to get tired. He starts to wear out. What's the cowboy do? He hits him with his spurs. Pick it up, big boy. Keep going. That's what you and I need in our lives from time to time. It doesn't always feel good. It's not always gentle. It's not always exactly what we choose and is comfortable, but we need it. We need to be spurred on. By one another. And I love the way that the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, Do it daily as long as it is called today. You know the the wonderful thing about that verse, the way he said that? I love that. Tomorrow never comes. Every day is today. So, how often are you supposed to do it? Every single day. I love that. So, those are three ways that we can practically and intentionally fight against the sin in our lives. I want us to, to look at the back half of these verses very quickly. So we need to see God's love for us and respond in love to Him. We need to understand the seriousness of our call to obedience. And then lastly, we need to understand this. We are commanded. We are commanded to love others. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, But an old commandment that you have had from the beginning, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So a sure faith, friends is built on obedience, but here's the fascinating thing. Then John turns around and he says, it is built on obedience and you're commanded to love. You are to obey in the way that you love other people. It's a fascinating thing. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but John chapter 13, 34 through 35, if you're taking notes, I encourage you just to scribble that down because that's where John is getting this idea. He says, this is no new commandment. What is he saying? He's saying, actually, this isn't something I made up. This isn't something that I, John, came up with. This is from Jesus. Jesus said in John 13, 34 to 35, that we are to love one another as he has loved us. Right? And that this is how the world will know that we are his disciples. How did Jesus love us? We've just been talking, we've been talking about it. How did Jesus love us? He loved us enough to be our propitiation. He loved us enough to stand in the place for us. He loved us enough to die for us. That's how much he loved us. And so if he is willing to do that, guess what you and I are called to do for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Whatever it takes. 
whatever it takes to, to demonstrate God's good grace towards them, to demonstrate God's love towards them, to build them up in Christ, to help them walk with him, to help them know him. There should be no limits that we will go to. And it is fascinating. Jesus said, this is how other people will know that you're my disciples. It's one of the defining marks of being a Christian. How do you know a Dalmatian dog when you see one? One word, spots. Guess what? Love is to be the biggest spot of a Christian. That we love one another. You're supposed to see it from a mile away. I wonder, friends, I just, I don't know. Do the people out there see the spot of love in here? Do they see a different kind of love that says, you know, I don't have that in my life. It's all too easy for you and me to come into here and to sit in this room and sing some songs and walk away. It's not what we're called to do. We're called to truly love one another. So here's the other thing we need to see in this passage. It's really important. Verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. The back part of that, there is no cause for stumbling. What is he talking about? He's talking about this, that when we choose not to love each other well, when we choose not to be the people that God calls us to be, we put a stone of stumbling in the path or into the lives of those who are watching. It's very simply this. Christianity becomes less believable. Have you ever heard someone say something like, I don't need to be around those people. They're just judgmental hypocrites. I don't believe Christianity. You know why I don't believe Christianity? If you pay attention, most people choose not to follow Jesus, not because Jesus did anything wrong. It's not Jesus that they're looking at. Most people who have a problem with Jesus point to people who claim to know Jesus. I don't trust Jesus because my parents said blah, blah, and blah, and then they did this all week long. I don't trust Jesus because I had a friend who said he was a a Christian on Sundays, and then he went and lived crazy all during the week. That's why I'm not a Christian. You put a path, a stone of stumbling in front of those who are watching. I just want to ask you this morning, friends, are you loving those that God has placed in your life? Are you putting a path of stumbling in the faith of your children by not being patient with them? Are you putting a stone of stumbling in the path of your family by not loving your spouse well? Are you putting a stone of stumbling in the path of someone here because you've got a feud with someone that sits across the room? We are called, it is commanded, love one another. Here's the key, and I'm going to be quiet. Just as I need to be filled with God's glory before I can reflect it, just as I need to to spend time with Him and be filled up with Him before I can show His glory to the world around me, I need to first be filled with His love before I can love the other people God has given me. I need to know verses 1 and 2 and believe them beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is my propitiation, that He's my hero, that He died for me, and that that will never, ever, 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 ever change no matter what I do. He loves me, and he's going to keep loving me. And so here's what I would just ask you, friends, when it comes to loving others well, when it comes to obeying Jesus and living lives of obedience. If Jesus can die for you, 
Can you live for Him? Will you do that today? Let's pray. Father God, we 